Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. A few months ago, Edward Isaac Dover, who was about to publish a play-by-play book about how Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump, wrote an article about a looming political problem. The problem, not surprisingly, was related to the pandemic. And he'd had a sense this was going to get pretty partisan soon after COVID hit. I'd say pretty much right away, and we saw uh, not long into the beginning of the pandemic last March that it was dividing over those lines. I think the the issue of schools ends up being uh, obviously one that gets caught up in a lot of other things because it's it's central uh, to so many lives, right? Dover is a staff writer for The Atlantic, and he's the author of the book Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. During the pandemic, he has seen the issue of schools become something that could reshape politics and control in America. It's what's happening to your children. It's can you go to work? It hits at questions about unions and larger politics than that. It, uh, what, what local government is doing, what local government should be doing, what the federal government can be doing. And all of that mixed together with an already politicized situation and already all of us at least a little bit on the edge from the pandemic over <laughs> these 16 months of it. It's inevitable that this would lead to some level political division. I think it's unfortunate that it's led to this much political division. But debates over masks, over shutdowns, over quarantine periods, over mandating vaccines for teachers, for teens, for younger kids, the whole thing, it's now touched three school years, which, Dover says, has Democrats worried because they've seen how COVID can play as a political issue. Over the course of 2020, there was this thought that this would all redound to Joe Biden's benefit, right? And that it would lead to a big Democratic wave, right? And it did end up pushing a lot of voters to Biden, thinking that there was a need for credible management experience, government experience. But when they went into Election Day, Joe Biden, Democrats around the country, were expecting to have a bigger night than they ended up having. Right. They expected that they might win the Senate outright. They expected that they might even expand their majority in the House. They expected that Joe Biden would have a at least somewhat bigger win. Instead, the Democrats lost House seats. The Senate was in flux until special elections in Georgia. And Dover says Biden did not win as big as his top advisors had hoped he would. And complicating the ability of political types to gauge public sentiment, Dover notes, is the fact that we tend to live not just in political bubbles, but in COVID bubbles. The people around us often feel the same way about masks and vaccines and in-person learning and on and on. And so just a year away from the 2022 midterms, which could determine control of Congress, and on the doorstep of some off-year races, the question is how this is all going to play out. In September, California Governor Gavin Newsom faces a recall election, and there are big governor's races this November in New Jersey and Virginia. Well, look, Virginia and New Jersey both had school districts that didn't open fully through the entire 2020-2021 year. Uh, okay, so were. those kids were uh, home for like a year 
plus or in yeah, some and by the, former uh, fashion. By the spring, there was some level of in-person going on, I think, in all okay. of them. And, okay. But uh, a couple of districts. New Jersey is many, many school districts, so <laughs> uh, it's a little hard to keep track of. I apologize. But this was a real live issue, and it's an issue that affects uh, suburban voters a lot. Suburban voters, obviously, are the swing voters right now. They're the voters that Donald Trump won in greater numbers than was anticipated in 2016 and then lost right. in 2018 and lost in 2020, giving the Democrats the wins that they had. These are parents who are looking at this and seeing that their public schools, for the most part, are the ones that are not open, that the teachers unions are uh, resisting or were resisting efforts to get back into the classroom and that still are wrangling with each other over what to do about things like vaccine mandates for employees. And then that doesn't even get into the questions of testing and mm -hmm. the mask mandates, which there have been protests uh, in New Jersey, we've seen more recently, protests about mask mandates for children. The governor there, who is up for re-election, has signed an order mandating that there be masks in school. He has been very out front on lots of COVID protections or restrictions and making clear that that's where things are. And look, he's pretty high up in the polls right now. We'll see if okay. that holds over the next, mm -hmm. next couple months. But right. the way that that's being received by voters so far seems to be positively. Um. If you are a Democratic pollster or you're in the Biden administration, how are people at the national level looking at what's happening and kind of digesting it in terms of like what you've heard from folks over the last year or more? What do they think about these fights? They see them unfolding on individual. Uh, they see them unfolding in, in Virginia, but they see them in Florida. They see them in different places. What do they think? It's obvious to the folks in the Biden administration to national Democratic operatives that they are going to have a much harder time come the 2022 elections if this next school year is as disrupted as the last school year was. Mm -hmm. If kids are not in class, if parents can't have that as a dependable thing uh, so that they can do their jobs and have their sanity, uh, that that's going to be something that will rebound against them when it comes mm -hmm. to voting time. Uh, and that will be something that hits them on all levels. And Senate races and House races were probably all the way down to local races, right? But if this next year goes well, or well enough, given right. that we are still in the middle of a pandemic, and this is not as much of a live issue, then it could be that this fades by the time of next November. If you look at uh, all the issues that uh, just over the course of like the 2020 calendar year, we were told we're going to absolutely reshape and determine what happened in the presidential election, uh, very few of them were on people's minds by the time mm -hmm. it came uh, to, to election day. Uh, I wonder if... Um you or people who are, are sort of watching this on either side of the aisle, Republican operatives, Democratic operatives, see a change in the wind. One of the things I wonder about is, you know, we talked about before, this is the third school year that will be affected by COVID. Does it matter as time goes along? Do, you know, do people who felt one way a year ago 
let's say, a voter who felt one year, a year ago feels differently now. I think about this because, like, Delta is only the fourth letter in the Greek alphabet. Like, there's no reason to believe that we're done with COVID or it's done with us or it ever will be. That's I, I wonder a little bit about that, whether positions on masking, that kind of thing, change over time. Are, are people willing to do that indefinitely? And perhaps, yes. I mean, I think we see a level of exhaustion all across, right? There's an mm-hmm. exhaustion with the restrictions with having to wear a mask there's a uh, there's an exhaustion with the people who have resisted getting vaccinated and resisted wearing masks and everybody i'm not sure i'm saying anything too innovative here i think everybody's ready for this to be over right but one of the things that i have found in speaking recently to phil murphy the governor of new jersey and uh, Terry McAuliffe, who's the Democrat running, he's the former governor of Virginia running in the hopes of becoming governor again, is that they are now themselves voicing an exasperation with the the lack of vaccination, with the holdouts, and okay. saying that this is hurting people in so many different ways, uh, whether it comes to the impact on taxpayers because of the public hospitals being used, or just the impact on health overall and children being put at risk. Or Terry McAuliffe said to me that it's impacting his civil liberties at this point because he would like to not have to wear a mask anymore as somebody who's I vaccinated, see. but now he has okay. to put it. And they are now plugging into a larger frustration that is clearly there among the vaccinated, among the people who feel like they have done everything right, Mm -hmm. essentially, on COVID, but are still in lockdown (laughs) and still, uh, right, having to think about that their children can't go to school in a normal way uh, because of these holdouts. And it seems like what we are seeing is a larger shift in the thinking about COVID, but, and that, of course, translates itself into the political realm. Vaccines have been available to everybody for three or four months now and mm-hmm. to the country for six, seven months, right? That there are people who are still not getting it, That is, and saying it's their choice is a choice that's obviously affecting everybody. So that's an interesting, uh, like, it's an interesting political calculus because I think, you know, amongst older people, let's say people who are over 70, over 60, over 50, there's um, certainly a pretty high uptake, especially in in blue states of the vaccine. Um, When I I looked uh, recently, um, amongst 12 to 15 year olds, only a quarter of them across the country are fully vaccinated. So when you get down to the level of young people, I don't know what will unfold with schools in terms of mandates, but it's hard to mandate something that only one in four people have opted to do at this point, being 12 to 15 year olds. Right. And of course, I, a lot of school age. That seems like a fight that's coming, doesn't it? Yeah. And a lot of school age children are under 12, right? Absolutely. The three to 11 year olds right. who are hoping, or their parents, I guess, more, are hoping that the vaccine will be approved for them. It seems to be the conventional wisdom that's set in that by October, the, uh, roughly, that there would be a vaccine for the 3 to 11-year-olds. There is no guarantee of that. And in fact, some of the people that I've spoken to who know about this say to me that it's probably at least a little bit further off than that. That changes a lot of the thinking in itself, right? If there's a vaccine that could be taken and perhaps even mandated for children by October, then that's most of the school year. But if that vaccine isn't available until 
even three months later. That's a big chunk of the school year that uh, changes the whole thinking about it. And that doesn't even get us into the inevitable fights and arguing about whether you can require the vaccine and how you can require uh, require it because we see it all happening for adults, uh, this argument that it's an emergency uh, approval and, and does that change how we can think about this. For children to say to parents that you have to get a vaccination for your child that is only under emergency approval is that that's going to be an even bigger hurdle, it would seem like, politically. Another aspect of this uh, vaccine issue, which you touched on, is that some teachers unions, we've seen it in California and New York State, which have said, we don't want to mandate vaccines for teachers. Now, uh, we're taping this on August 10th. That could change. But does that have uh, political ripples? Yeah, absolutely. And you see that in the spring uh, in California, the teachers union uh, made an arrangement that allowed its members to get to the front of the line for vaccinations and then resisted the push to get them back into the classroom. And of course, the the logic behind accelerating them to the front of the line on vaccinations was to accelerate the process of getting back into the classroom. Things like this and all of the union pushback that's been there in New York State, there there was some pushback against mandating vaccines for teachers uh, from the teachers union there. It pulls at something deep in the guts of folks who are suspicious of teachers' unions, always one of the boogeymen of politics, because there are a lot of parents who think that the teachers' unions are trying to get something better for themselves, and it's at the expense of their children. The teachers' unions would say that by taking care of them, their members, by taking care of the teachers, they're doing things to take care of the children. But this is it, it, long before COVID, teachers' unions' politics uh, was a popular topic in elections because it motivates people and it often motivates voters against the teachers unions uh, and and sometimes motivates voters for it, uh, what teachers unions want. And so when it comes to this issue, what we're seeing is a lot of folks who would be against teachers unions already being mobilized by politicians who were against teachers unions already. Again, we'll see the beginnings of the test cases of this this fall, but really it's a question of what this looks like overall by probably this time next year uh, to know what kind of political issue it'll be. Finally, um, when you uh, think about this issue of COVID and education and people's opinion, how does this I mean, this is a party, you've written so much about the Trump-Biden election. Uh, The Republican Party is in some ways a party where Trump is a mostly absent figure. How does this speak to you to the ways in which our politics are changing and people in the individual parties are are drifting and moving and and what what kind of politics we're seeing unfold in front of us as we, you know, go towards the 2022 elections? It is an unfortunate and amazing thing, I think, to most people to look at this and see that an issue of public health, a basic issue of vaccination and masking has become just part of the partisan divide, right? And to watch how, take just as a sample group, the House of Representatives, that every Democratic member of the House of Representatives has gotten vaccinated, and uh, I think we're at somewhere around a quarter of House Republicans have not gotten vaccinated, 
right? Those are the numbers that we uh, are looking at among the leaders. And you see it among, uh, again, we can be suspicious of polls, justifiably so, but among Democrats, Democrats are reporting a much higher rate of vaccination than Republicans are. Republicans saying that they either aren't going to get vaccinated or some say that they want to wait until the emergency authorization is through. That seems like a little bit of an excuse at this point. But at the same time, we are actually seeing hundreds of thousands of people each week still going to get vaccinated. It's not like the rush that was there in March and April when there were long lines uh, for anybody who could even get an appointment. Now it's really easy to get an appointment. And there are a lot of people who are going to get vaccinated still. Not as many <laughs> as uh, I think most public health officials and most government officials would hope. And, and, and it's not just like if you are online to get vaccinated now, then you must have been a Republican voter last year or a Republican voter now. There are issues about different communities and all of that going on. But it does seem like where we are is that if you got vaccinated early, you were more likely to be a Democrat. Um, and if you're getting vaccinated at this point, you are or not getting that if you are still getting vaccinated or not getting vaccinated, then you are more likely to be a Republican. Hmm. Edward Isaac Dover is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's the author of Battle for the Soul Inside the Democrats Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And before we go here, a final word on schools and the pandemic. Nearly a year ago, the fall of 2020, we talked to a few families scattered across the country who had decided to leave public school. Sometimes that was because they didn't want their kids learning remotely. Sometimes it was because it seemed safer not to have them in school in person. We unanimously decided, like, let's keep going with this. The kids are doing well. They're happy. They're where they need to be academically. That's Courtney Wittenstein. She lives on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, and she's describing the learning pod she created last year with a handful of other parents and a friend she hired who's a teacher. Wittenstein says her daughter, her son, and the three other children in the pod loved it. So it's been going really well. We've done like some extracurricular things. We ha- we went to, um, we had the kid, the older kids do Audubon where they had the science curriculum there. They did that for a total, I think, between the fall and then we did it again, started in the spring. I want to say it was like nine or 10 weeks. But Wittenstein didn't have the resources to keep paying for homeschooling. And she thinks it's time for the kids to meet new people and make new friends. So this year, they are heading to public school for third grade and kindergarten. I feel emotional thinking that they're going back to school. And I, you know... I think it's time, but I, it's been a really incredible experience to watch them grow um, and to know that we're capable of doing this. On the other side of the country, in the Seattle area, tech worker Maria Makarenkova pulled her daughter out of public school last summer. Our public school, unfortunately, was not offering any instructor-led training, so we had teachers entertaining with the kids only for 15 minutes a week on Mondays, like 9 a.m. to 9.15 a.m., that's it. And unfortunately for both of us parents working full-time, it was unmanageable. She enrolled her daughter in private school where she thrived. But this fall, the second grader is going to be headed back to public school after qualifying for an accelerated academic program called Quest. 
a lot of uh, again friends were asking me like okay what's next for you what's next year like did you thought about it and we honestly said that we're waiting for the results of the tests if we get into quest we're going there if we're not then most probably i'll be looking for another private school for another year maria makarenkova is a mom in the seattle area courtney wittenstein is a mom on cape cod thanks to the people who helped put together this show Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Abby Bagini, who's an amazing, an amazingly productive intern who we're really sad to see go. But we wish her tons of luck this school year. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub.